Hi everyone, welcome to Dads of Daughters. It's been a long time between pods, so thank you for coming back and welcome if you're new. We've obviously been very distracted of late, as we all have, with life and with parenting, but I have been thinking a lot about this podcast and the types of conversations that that I'm really keen to, to have and hopefully you're, you're keen to listen to. Um, and I think this chat with Ella is, is an incredibly important conversation in that it really does set the premise for this whole podcast and this whole way of thinking. Um, and that's essentially that the world is a different place for men and for boys than it is for women and for girls. And, and the more we can understand that, um, the, the more empowered we can be to to go about making the little changes that can support our daughters um, to to live within that world and, and hopefully um, for us to, to work towards changing that in some ways. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Um, as always, you can follow me on Instagram at Dads of Daughters Pod. Please do leave any suggestions for the types of topics or conversations you'd like to hear um, over the next few months. But for now, um, I hope you enjoy this one with Ella. Hi, Ella. Welcome to the podcast. Great to have you. Hi, Dave. Good to be here. Um, it's a nice, wet, stormy night to be talking about the big issues of the world. So I appreciate you making the time. Yeah, it's been bucketing down here uh, tonight. And don't, I think it's eased up for now. But if you hear that in the background, that might be it. <laughs> it's, our, it's our professional yeah. mics recording everything. <laughs> um, so let's let's start with who you are and, and why I'm talking to you. And you're probably better placed to answer that question. And I don't want to do you a disservice by jumping in. So um, tell everyone about yourself, Ella. So I'm a gender equality advocate um, and gender equity practitioner and I've worked in organisational change as well as um, response to violence against women. Um, I'm also a parent and live with my partner and my five-year-old daughter and my dog. Um, so yeah, so both uh, professional and theoretical knowledge, and then the messy applied experience of trying to bring that to life in my own family. Yeah, more so for your daughter than your dog. Oh, you know, who knows what kinds of benefits the dog's getting? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a that's a different. But yes, podcast. he's he's not. Yeah, that's a very different podcast. He, he's not you. Uh, foremost in my mind when it comes to these issues, no. The, the, the least of your, your problems that you're dealing with. Um, <laughs> so, look, I just want I, I was really keen to talk to you because um, I was kind of talking before we started. The I've taken it for granted a little bit, the um, the context for why I'm doing what I'm doing, and that's that's essentially that the world is a very different place for for girls and for women than it is for boys and men. Um, and that's why I'm interested in having these types of conversations, bringing to, to or helping to bring two young girls into the world. Um, but um, 
I think it's it's really useful for me and hopefully for everyone else listening if we actually explore what some of those differences are and why they are the way they are and and some of the things that we can do as parents to um, to make the small changes to make it a little bit better and safer for the girls and women that that we're supporting through life so it's it's potentially uh, a huge topic well it is a huge topic um we'll we'll take some bite-sized pieces out of it i guess um but i mean let's just start with what what the world looks like for our daughters at the moment that they're coming into yeah so one of my favorite cartoons for this is a fishbowl with two fish in it and one one fish says to the other how's the water today and the other fish says, what's water? <laughs> because that fish is just swimming in it yeah. all the time and has never felt the absence of it. And um, I love that cartoon because it really speaks to what it's like to for all of us as individuals to walk through the world with our subjective awareness different degrees of awareness and consciousness about different things. And so some things we have almost no awareness of and are completely blind to, other things are very present to us all the time. And there's lots of different reasons um, that and ways that that experience is influenced. And gender is just one of the ways in that operates to, to change that experience. Um, but what we do know is that it's a driver um, of many different forms of privilege and disadvantage that people experience across the lifespan. Um, and I think one of the most important things to understand from the get-go is how socially constructed ideas about gender are and who a woman should be, what a girl should be, what are the prized ways of being a woman or a girl, what are the prized ways of being a man or a boy, um, and recognising that these are all learned patterns of behaviours that are then reinforced by structures and norms and policies and cultures that become the water that we're just swimming in all the time. Um but some of that, so the status quo at the moment is pretty dire and people's knowledge of that is not great either. So um, the most recent National Community Attitude Survey, which is the largest um, survey in Australia looking at attitudes to violence against women and gender equality, um, found that around um, 20 percent of people still believe that um, women exaggerate the extent to which they're discriminated against um, and so that's one of the things that really troubles me is that not only statistically do we know that women are encountering forms of disadvantage um, from pregnancy discrimination to um men's violence against women to the gender pay gap to just being interrupted all the time <laughs> to, you know, from the trivial and mundane right through to the um, 
you know, profound things like loss of life through violence. Um, yeah, d- despite all the statistical um, evidence of that, that a lot of people still think that really it's not that bad or that actually aren't we equal already? Um, and really where I think we are is that um, there's not a lot of formal discrimination against women anymore. So what I mean by that is there's not a lot of laws on the books that say, you know, women can't be in the public service or, you know, women can't do this or only men can do that. Of course, that sort of egregious, really formal discrimination um, isn't very present anymore. But what is present is really... um, learned cultural beliefs and stigmas um, that operate to really uh, limit people's opportunities and outcomes um, and operate to yeah disadvantage people across the lifespan yeah I'll just take I'll just take a breath (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah and it's so true, I guess, because we as a society, Australia, and I guess globally, more generally, are heading in the right direction. It's easy to take for granted that um, there's still so much work to do and, and just, um, as you say, be, still be in the fishbowl and, and be ignorant to, to all the challenges and um, structures and norms that are still in place. Um, and it, I correct me if I'm wrong. It, is it one woman every week in Australia that's killed by violence? Um, it's just over one woman every week who's killed by, um, her current or former intimate partner. Mm. And as you say that that's the extreme end of the spectrum, which is horrific and, and still so prevalent that. You know, we um, we don't pay nearly enough attention to, and that's that's the most um, visible and visceral example of um, inequality and discrimination. Um, to say nothing of everything else that happens for women in the world and even in Australia, um, I'm I'm really curious, Ella. How did you feel when you discovered you? Um, had a daughter and not a son. Hmm. Um, I didn't didn't have any really strong feelings in the moment um, that I found that out, and it was it was more for me. I just wanted to know either way because pregnancy was such a a, like a wild ride and approaching birth for the first time my attitude was kind of like I think there's going to be enough novelty and unknowns kind of on the day and I just don't really need another surprise in the works you know um so I just wanted that piece piece of information to I don't know claw back some sense of control in that process um but I I think when it when it started to sink in was really um when it started started to connect with 
what was happening for me in becoming a mother. So um, the experience of being pregnant and visibly pregnant and navigating public space in a pregnant body um, and noticing how different that was for my male partner during that period and that I didn't have the privilege of ever leaving pregnancy at home. Mm. Um, and at the time I was looking for work and feel I felt this really visceral fear of being known to be pregnant and who's going to hire me and, um, you know, knowing that one in two pregnant women say that they've, they would have been discriminated against either in hiring or um, taking leave or returning to work. So it's kind of, um, so I was noticing that difference in experience. And then I also, you know, in that first six to eight weeks of mothering this newborn, uh, I just really came to have this expanded sense of the cumulative microaggressions against women and children and the work of caring for children in in that role. So my first Mother's Day, um, my daughter's birthday is in early March and so um, my first Mother's Day in, in May, I, you know, made that effort to get a very young baby, like, and myself dressed and into the car and we'd driven up and met family at, at the top of Mount Macedon, um, which for listeners who don't know is kind of a, a tourist destination in the way lots of tourist de destinations, there's like one cafe at the top of the, the mount kind of thing. Um and so I met my mum and my sister up there for, for Mother's Day and they were advertising like, come to us for Mother's Day and special lunch and whatever, right? But then I go to change um, my daughter's nappy and there's no change table and to like get down on the floor and change her on the floor and, um, you know, then the food takes forever and so she misses her nap and then, you know, is crying and having to get her into her car seat and then I'm I'm driving down the highway, right, singing. I'm, so we've done the whole lunch and everything. I'm driving down the highway on my way home just feeling exhausted because, of course, I'm in the middle of sleep deprivation and everything and this is supposed to be like Mother's Day. It's a, it's a lovely treat, like enjoy the all the thanks and appreciation of Mother's Day. And so I'm driving down the highway and I'm trying to sing somewhere over the rainbow over my shoulder to the, this crying <laughs> newborn in the backseat. She finally goes to sleep. I turn on, I sort of exhale. Oh, okay, you know, on the way home, I um, turn on the radio and the news is on. And they're covering Joe Hockey calling women double dippers for trying to access government parental leave and employer paid um, parental leave. And it was, so it was just this sense, this kind of awakening to the aggressions that uh that becomes so pointed at that transition point 
for uh, um, when you become a parent and especially for women becoming mothers. And since then, you know, going on to work in this field and look at some of the research, you know, I, I can see in the charts and the graphs how true that is, um, like that it is just this key turning point for women and men in heterosexual relationships journey through the transition into parenthood it becomes this crucial turning point where women's paid work drops right off men's paid work actually increases a little bit when babies are born which I was really shocked to learn um and yeah so since then it's just been a it's been a process of me trying to make sense of that intellectually and then also living that question of how do you do this how do you try to bring it to life Mm. um wow you've touched on so many things to talk about um we we haven't really delved too much in, in the conversations i've had for this um around that sort of parental relationship in a in a um, sort of a heteronormative sense, um, and the the roles that mums take on versus dads take on, and and in Australia, and Meg and I have um, battled with this um, pretty consistently for the last four and a bit years. The the structure of parental leave has forced us into the roles into very traditional gender roles in spite of our um, best intentions and efforts um but financially we're very constrained by you know meg has to breastfeed or had to at the time um so she had to be with the with the girls and so i had to work so and that without government support as as there is in other countries that just pushed us down the path that we didn't really want to be on and at the time i was i was working part-time and you know i had some more flexibility and capacity support but you know i wish i could take a year off and you know be a stay-at-home dad for um, extended periods. Um, is that something you sort of felt as well? Oh, so, so much. And I, it just kind of, yeah, it's this series of nudges and gateways through which you have to make these decisions and the policies and settings around you nudge you in a certain direction and it's kind of like that exponential thing. Like it might only feel like a small nudge at the time and it's the right decision because of all these factors. And, of course, finances is always present. Um, and But then suddenly what felt like a little nudge over time kind of expands to be these really divergent paths for you as individuals in the family unit and we've struggled with that, that hugely so um like our current scenario is that um nathan my partner is working full-time and i'm working the equivalent of kind of one day a week um and our daughter has just started school this year so um yeah and that current scenario 
is hugely influenced by those decisions we made in that first year of her life where I also chose to breastfeed. Um, Our daughter also um, had a severe case of bottle refusal. So like that was so intense. And and one of the things that um, I thought, wow, this is not what I thought at all, is that I had just completely internalised this neoliberal idea that, like, of course you can breastfeed and work. Like, of course you can breastfeed and go to an external workplace. Like, you just get a pump. It's, you know, go ahead and do it. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, the breastfeeding relationship is so complex and, like, such a symbiotic thing. And, like, a pump is just, like, it's an excellent tool that can be useful sometimes but is totally not the same as um, being physically present with your baby and so that was another moment where I was like oh what this is not kind of this is not the capitalist dream I was sold about modern motherhood (laughs) Um, yeah So, yeah, that has been a struggle for us. And I just, I can't help feeling, Dave, that, like, if people like you and I are struggling so much with this and can see the kind of whole of population patterns playing out in our own lives to such a degree, it's kind of, yeah, I find it disheartening sometimes or I'm like, you know, if we're, we're the fully on board, want to do it, um, people, it is, yeah, it is really, really difficult. Yeah. And I guess that it's kind of that thing of um, the knowledge might be like a wetsuit. I, I was thinking about this. It's kind of like kind of like swimming with a wetsuit on, right, but expecting that you won't get wet just because you've got a wetsuit on. Mm kind of unrealistic like even though you might have knowledge about it we are still living in that you know that water and influenced by all those things um are we wearing the wetsuit in the fishbowl still i think so yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah cool. i'd have to make it bigger um yeah. and you know i guess why we're both so um, clearly frustrated by this is um, the the impact this has on um, what our kids are learning from us. Well, I guess both how we are sort of existing in the world, but but also how, what our kids are learning from us in terms of what they see the roles you know mum and dad are, are playing. And and like you said, with the with the fishbowl, um, it, it it starts with um, learned behaviours. Um, and I'm wondering what what are some of the other things that you're really conscious of right now um, with a five-year-old daughter um, that you're seeing and either trying to fight against or, or trying to um, encourage learning in a direction that is not really the way things normally are? Does that question make sense? I was a bit wandering. Yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. Um, So the things that are really present for us at the moment are um, 
encouraging risk taking and um, physical expression. So one of the things that I've struggled with in my life and are trying to actively unlearn is um, trying to dismantle this belief that if I follow the rules and am compliant and agreeable, then I get the gold star in life and that's how life works, you know, and I, I can really see that in my own life, you know, I got extremely, extremely good at discerning the rules, following the rules, and then waiting for my reward. <laughs> and um, in formal learning environments, like the schooling environments and the university environments I was in, that actually kind of worked for me in some ways, but it doesn't work in life. And that's become really problematic for me and so of course that's present for me my parenting um, of my daughter and so for example I really try to not to say I try not to say be careful I try to say wow you're high there make sure you've got a good grip or um, uh, make sure you've got your balance or um, if I need to set, you know, a safety safety boundary about something, I try to explain why. So we, uh, my daughter's very into climbing, and um, but I kind of have a rule that no climbing if there's concrete underneath you. And um, so I try to use language around, well, I can really see why you want to climb that. That looks so fun. Um, but we're not going to do that because there's concrete below you and we need to look after our brains. And if you fell, you could really hurt your head and that would be a trip to hospital. So try and explain the consequences to her in a way that's specific and context appropriate so that I'm not just instilling her with this <laughs> generalised fear or instruction to be careful in life. Mm. Um, so that's one thing that's very present. And then the other thing that's really present is, um, and it's a similar vein, but trying to encourage her to welcome and be loose about making mistakes. So, um, she's very conscientious and I, see that aspect of myself in her as well and um, it's definitely work that I'm still doing for myself um, and it's really showing up at the moment with um, my daughter having started school this year about her wanting to present things as perfect to her teachers rather than say um oh, this is what happened when I had a go and I'm happy with this and not happy with that or, you know, she'll say, oh, let's not show them that or especially in the current context where we're all staying home because of this pandemic, there's this added dynamic going on where I'm supposed to be photographing or videoing what she's doing and then uploading it for her teacher. And so she's um, starting to engage in this kind of what I guess is curating behaviour where she will say, or like she'll want to practice reading the book 
before I video her reading the book to upload for her teacher. And so I'm just really conscious about um, that performative impulse Mm. of like wanting everything to be this smooth, perfect show for people rather than an authentic expression or documentation of what her experience is of doing that activity. Um, Yeah, so... So those two are really present. And then the third thing that we're kind of working on as a family is trying to create um, a culture of asking so that it's always okay to ask for what you want. Sometimes the answer might be no. Mm -hmm. Um, They're such good examples. Um, And, yeah, same on all fronts. The other, um, the other one that I really struggle with is the, well, two, I think. One, similar to yours, you know, the good girl and just never saying good girl because <laughs> you don't really say good boy. So why do the girls have to be good? Um, and just encouraging you know a wildness and a freedom it doesn't have to be wild but she doesn't have to feel constrained by you know our expectations of what's good and what's not and and there's obviously you know keep everyone safe keep yourself safe constraints that you know you need to have but beyond that it's yeah it's such a trap for girls to fall into or for parents of girls to fall into to mm-hmm. want to encourage that her to be a good girl um mm. and the the other which i i'm keen to hear your thoughts on it's cuz you know it could be my own uh, uh i don't know um issues to deal with but th- around appearance and um, I'm just so conscious of all the inputs for girls in particular to look a certain way and to be a certain thing in how they present to the world physically. Um, and, you know, from the princess sort of um, stereotype um, through to, you know, how girls are presented in books or, and all female characters are presented in books as... You know, if they're animals, they're more likely to be the bunny than the lion. Um, but but I was talking to Meg about this ages ago and and just like it's it's a really fine balance because we shouldn't discourage them from wanting to be a princess if they do want to be a princess as well. And, you know, we shouldn't shame them for, for wanting to um, feel good in how they dress and all the rest. So it, it's a really delicate balance. Is that something you've... Um, encountered or or thought much about oh yeah like from so early on as well because um, one thing that I found really tricky to navigate is gift giving or receiving gifts rather like people giving us gifts Um, because yeah from from day dot the a lot of the gifts that we've received have been um highly highly feminized or just 
yeah, highly gendered and, and that's a whole supply issue as well is that so much of what is out there for kids is really gendered one way or the other. Um, there's not a lot out there that's easily accessible that's just presented for children rather than boys or girls. Um, so that's been an evolving conversation in our extended family and, um, yeah, it, ha it has changed over time, which has been really lovely to see, but definitely um, pink clothing and um, dresses and... Um, but I completely hear what you're saying because you don't want to stigmatise the feminine. The objective of this work is not to say that femininity is less than. Um, yeah, and I think so, like, as we're talking as well, I just want to unpack a little bit, like, the different layers at which this is all operating because... Um, I have found there's a real temptation in this work to think about how I'm parenting rather than how I'm modelling because mm. <laughs> it's easier for me to go, oh, I can, um, you know, make sure she's got a wide variety of colours to wear and has a wide variety of toys to choose from and that sort of stuff like that's useful to an extent but there's also no getting around that what children learn most from is what we model for them and that's kind of less fun sometimes Dave <laughs> <laughs> tell me about it <laughs> less fun sometimes yeah so um yeah, and that, and that can be operating on an internal level. So, you know, me as an individual, what have I learned? What was modelled for me in my childhood? What have I learned from the cultures of the communities and organisations that I've been part of? What have I learned from and internalised from being in the world and what behaviour is rewarded or approved of or not? Um, and then there's how do we operate as a family in our interpersonal relationships? So, you know, how do me and my partner uh, wield power? How do we make decisions? Where do I overfunction and underfunction? And where does my partner as a man overfunction and underfunction? And, you know, even like a year ago, we were like, my partner was complaining about mowing the lawn and we just had this conversation where I was like, I actually really like being outside um, and I'd be happy to do that and you can stay inside away from the bugs that you hate. Um, but there were a couple and so now I mow the lawn. But there were actually a couple of obstacles that we had to overcome in order to get to that, which was that I actually didn't know how to properly use a lawnmower. Like no one had shown me. I'd never been taught like how to put fuel in it or start it safely or, you know, there was a few just like knowledge gaps that I needed filled so that I could do that. And, you know, for my partner, he also needed to feel safe and aware enough of his own feelings that he doesn't like doing that. <laughs> 
so yeah like on one level I was like oh this is so stupid I can't believe we've this has been a blind spot for so long but on the other hand it's like yeah we were both under functioning in some ways or or had deficits that bolstered so that we could shift that in the family so I needed some knowledge and some technical skill that I'd missed out on which maybe if I was a boy I would have been taught that when I was growing up and um, for my partner he needed to feel safe expressing a feeling which was is outside you know the dominant male norm for things around around the house yeah um it's such a good point about role modeling and um i guess a, a big part of what i'm trying to do with this podcast is to think about how we um uh function as parents and as dads in particular um and um yeah being so what do you think sorry you go i just just want to I'm curious to know what you think are the biggest deficits that dads need support with in role modelling yeah. equality in the family. Uh, I was going to ask you about this one, Ella, but it for me, um, I, th- I think <laughs> <laughs> the the biggest um, sort of functional deficit that I have, and I think most men as partners and parents tend to have um is around emotional labor um and the amount of time and effort that goes into thinking and planning for all things to do with family and house and members of the family um and that's from you know, meal planning for the week, that's from, you know, appointments for doctors and, you know, needles to uh, recreational stuff for the girls, like, you know, organising swimming lessons or um, or even, you know, social catch-ups with, you know, friends from daycare. Um, and so all of those things um it's um it's a huge load that most women i think carry and i'll be keen to hear your thoughts ella um but i did do a list because i i really struggle with it potentially for similar reasons as your lawnmower experience um, you know, it wasn't something that was modelled to me when I was growing up. I didn't have a particular consci- consciousness around it, as opposed to most girls who seeing their mums do this. Um, and I guess I didn't, um, just to um, draw on all the excuses, I, I didn't feel like I, I had the toolkit um, to do it particularly effectively and it just wasn't it wasn't in my consciousness like it just it's never in my mind as as it is in Meg's mind so um i a while ago wrote a list of all the things that i thought that she was doing that i could see that i had to consciously sort of think about and take the time to recognize and then start thinking about 
um, some of the things that I could do. I, I have a reminder in my phone for every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Um, that just says emotional labor that I just get an alarm to just remind me to think about things <laughs> because I need that because otherwise I won't. Um, but things like being proactive and organizing catch-ups with like, um, you know, friends from daycare, I've kind of taken that on. Um, I'm so far from, we're so far from 50, 50, like it's still not funny. Um, but yeah, it's definitely the biggest one that, that I'm conscious of and, and just the weight that that, um, um, places on girls and on women from at least from what I can see and from the conversations I've had with Meg it's really significant is is that something you've found yeah so I think that the the first thing that I want to say is that I think we need more precise definitions of what emotional labor is because one thing that I'm hearing when um, you describe your experience of it is um, that the examples that you gave are what I would describe as uh, family management. So I would actually call that management labour um, because for me emotional labour I think sits more squarely in the can I sit with a child who's angry, can I comfort a child in distress without minimising what's happened? Can I um, hear feedback from my partner about my parenting without being defensive or dismissive? Um, and I, I really believe those distinctions and the precision that we use in our language is really important because the emotional and relational realm um, has been so undervalued and I think particularly for men undernurtured um, that it's important that we don't conflate practical management of the household and division of labour with actual emotional, relational health and the labour involved in maintaining that as well. Mm. Yeah, so, so that's my first reflection on, on that because and that kind of... Um, that reflection came out of a frustration of mine, which was that a lot of the conversations I was hearing around this topic seemed to devolve into time management. And I was like, I just feel like there's more going on here. Do you know what I mean? Like this is not a calendar problem. Um, and like, it, you know, time use is definitely one aspect of this problem, right? And it's often where we feel a lot of tension and conflict because it feels like a zero-sum game a lot of the time. Well, if you're with the kids, I'm working and, and, you know, we all know about that struggle. But there are lots of other aspects to this as well that aren't time use, that aren't management-based, um, which are around who has voice, how do we, what's our decision-making process as a family, um, you know, what do we pay attention to as worthy of debate and deliberation versus a default pattern? Um, 
So I just feel like there's lots of layers to it that go beyond the management aspect, but not to discount the significant labour involved in the management of a household as well. So that has definitely been something that's um, part of my experience and that's been one of definitely the growth edges for my partner and I is um, trying to develop a shared language and approach around what the emotional needs are in the family um, and then on the kind of management labor side of things yeah we don't we don't have like a hugely structured approach to it but um, we have recently started adopting something that we've picked up from Brene Brown which is checking in with each other about how much energy or re internal resourcing you have out of a hundred but like sitting down and going like oh I'm a 20 right now and um yeah and the other person saying that's okay you know I'm a 70 so I can I can lead this I've got this okay you're and but then, you know, also going, oh, God, we're both at 10. What does that mean? Okay, that means we're getting takeaway for dinner. That means we're not doing any clean, like, you know, um, what can we do then to resolve both both people? So and I guess the other thing that works really well for us is that um, we have domains that we're responsible for. So um, Nathan does... Um, almost all of the cooking I do almost all of the laundry and um, we kind of just allow each other that domain and don't sort of get in each other's way about it because there's only so many conversations you can have in a given week you know you've got to find patterns and rhythms that work for you as a family um, but yeah, then checking in as it evolves, cause it's always dynamic and like, you know, life is always changing. I think being able to check in and also being able to let go. If you're the person saying I'm over, um, being able to let go. And I think where a lot of people trip over on this is where someone, you know, typically the woman wants to hand something off to the male partner, um, and then um, but either doesn't give full information or still wants to kind of have oversight <laughs> of what's going on. And I've been there. I've totally done that in the past. But, like, what I've learned over time is that if you need to delegate something, delegate all of it. So, you know, just like I would in a workplace or a professional environment, like set out the outcome that you want, the parameters that it has to be within when you need it by, and then, okay, great, let me know if you have any questions. Like, um, and sometimes I think that's that can be really uncomfortable for women because, um, you know, for some women it's it's hard to receive help. We're told that our gold star comes if we can do it all and do it perfectly. And so sometimes it's just actually really difficult to say to your partner, I need help with this. Um, that feel, can feel really taboo. And so one thing I think dads can really do is 
I love the inventory idea that you had and I think like another way to build on that is just to um, notice what tends not to be in your partner's strength basket, like something that maybe they're doing a lot of that they don't like doing, that they're not good at, that stresses them out or, you know, what's burdensome for them that would be easy for you or not even easy but just that you could contribute in that way and have that conversation and, you you know, make the offer. I can do this, let me do this um, and, you know, not necessarily expecting A, your partner to be immediately comfortable with it, like it might be a process of a partner learning to let go of that and then um, be like, I don't know, don't expect a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That's really helpful. And I, I love a deadline. I love a, uh, <laughs> a clear outcome and deadline. It's so useful for me. Um, but it's something I struggle with as well, letting, you know, things that I would traditionally see in my domain, you know, as with Nathan with the lawn mowing, um, you know, asking for help, um, where it's required because it's, it's about being, you know, it's showing vulnerability and it's showing, um, you know, a, a openness that we're not often sort of taught as, as men in the world. Um, and I really like your distinction of emotional labour versus household management. And I, I think for Meg and I, perhaps because we're both such empaths, we <laughs> maybe take for granted that the emotional side of um, the house... We're, we're reasonably okay with it's more the practical side of the management but I think that's a really mm. really good way of, of thinking about it, an important way of thinking about it as well um, I'm just conscious of, of time but I was just wondering um, there's so there's so much to be done um, and you know we'll keep having these conversations through the podcast um, going forward but I'm just wondering from your sort of experience, just as a, as a motivation incentive for, for men and for dads to keep working on, on this and on themselves as, as part of this journey, what, what are, what's one thing or a couple of things that you just wish more men or, or dads knew about or thought about? Is there something that, that just gets you every time that you just you know, just men have no idea about that's, that they should and it, it's it's motivating for them to be better dads, to be um, to be creating the world that they want for their daughters. So when I think about the why for dads, I think one of the challenges is that because this is such an octopus of an issue operating at so many levels, sometimes there's just this really yearning for like, how do we ground this, you know? Like what does this all mean? Why is this important? Um, and when I think about that, I think about, you know, think about your daughter and think about what's worse than living in a system and culture that tells you that you're less than and throughout your lifespan is going to subject you to myriad disadvantages well what's worse than living that is not knowing that you're living in it 
So, and I like the way that, okay, so, and why is it worse not knowing about it? Because then as an individual, as you're trying to navigate your life as a woman, your daughters are likely to have these types of experiences. And if you're not able to give them the confidence and knowledge that this is the water that they're swimming in, the tendency is for individuals to then self-blame. Oh, my gosh, why did this happen to me? Why didn't I get that job? Why are my colleagues getting paid more than me? Why did that person abuse me? Why did that person sexually assault me? I must have done something wrong. And there's plenty in the dominant culture that will give them that message. Um, And so really as parents, as men, as fathers, the why is so that you can arm yourself and therefore your daughters to navigate what is essentially a broken system. And I really like the way that Iris Benet talks about it. Um, She's a behavioural economist um, and she says we have to fix the system but we also have to give people the tools to navigate a broken system while we're doing it. So, and I just love that way of thinking about it because, you know, there's activism we can undertake at a collective level, like, you know, writing to your MPs and agitating about the gender pay gap and those things that you can do on that collective level. And then there's things that you can do on an internal level in self-reflecting um, and you've given some beautiful examples of how you do that as a as a dad um, in during this conversation and then there's that interpersonal piece as well about arming your daughters with knowledge and skills and love to be resilient in a broken system and know that there's nothing wrong with them as individuals, as people, um, because and that's why the Me Too movement was so momentous because all these women who were carrying shame about what had happened to them suddenly were able to look up and look around and see that it was a collective problem, not an individual one. Wow. Thanks, Ella. Um, that's that's really powerful and um you've been such a fabulous guest and and um i could talk to you all night and and probably need to all night and for many many more years of nights to come to um to get to where i need to be but um for now i really appreciate it and um thanks so much for your time tonight ella thanks dave It's really, um, yeah, thank you for having me. It's great. (laughs) Enjoy the conversation. Awesome. Thanks. See ya. Bye.